give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we could have it today. Lord, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word? Would you, by your spirit, teach us and train us, correct us, God, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake? I pray that you would use the preaching of the word to make your people more like Jesus. Help us, O God, help me, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. Religious people worship. Skeptics and agnostics worship. Even atheists worship. The sounds of worship fill the air every day, every day of the week, not just on Sundays. Yes, worship pours forth from churches like this, but it also spills out from sports arenas, lecture halls, concert venues, boardrooms, and even family rooms. Human beings were created to worship. You and I were created to worship. So the heart of the matter is not whether we worship. That's not the question at hand. It's not whether we worship. 
but rather what or whom do we worship? Whom do we worship? I guess it would help make the point if I defined worship. It might make it easier for us. So what is worship? At its very root, the word means worthiness or acknowledgement of worth. So worthiness or acknowledgement or assent of worth. To worship something or someone is an act. It's an act of ascribing or acknowledging the worth of that person or that thing. It is a proclamation. It's a proclamation of praise and a proclamation of devotion. It's not just saying that something or someone is worthy of our praise. It's saying that something or someone is so worthy of our praise that we must devote our lives to it. It is worthy of our supreme devotion. So when we worship, we not only praise someone or something with our words, but we actually devote our hearts, our minds, our wills. We devote all of that to that person or that thing. And this is how God made us. It's how he wired us. He made us to worship. But he made us chiefly to worship him. This week, we're continuing in this summer series, and we're continuing it. This is week two, and we're going to try to answer the age-old fundamental question, who am I? Who am I? Last week, we answered that question by saying this, I am an image bearer. Who am I? I am an image bearer. That is, we've been specially created in God's image to both possess and reflect his character. This week... We turn from Genesis all the way to Romans 1, here in in verses 18 through 32, to answer the same question, who am I? To peel back another layer of the onion, so to say. Who am I? We're going to answer it this way. I am a worshiper. Who am I? Who are you? You are a worshiper. I am a worshiper. So following Anthony's example... To guide us this morning, I have three points, so good work, my friend. Three points, so if you take notes, here they are. First, we're going to look at the wrath of God. Number one, the wrath of God. Number two, the suppression of man, the suppression of man. And number three, the heart of worship, the heart of worship. So we're going to begin where the Apostle Paul, who is the author of the letter to the church in Rome, or the book of Romans, however you know it, he begins in verse 18 with what? The wrath of God. Good place to start where the apostle himself starts. If you're not familiar with this, the the letter uh, of Romans, the book of Romans, is a letter to a church, to a church in Rome, uh, a historical church in a historical place. Paul is writing to them to clarify for them the truths of the gospel that he's been preaching. He wants them to have it all laid out for them before he arrives. He longs to get there. If you know this letter, he longs to be in Rome. So he sends this letter in advance, and it's a great treatise. Right? He teaches them all the things that he's been preaching. He goes to this long teaching section before he ever gets to the admonition right, and the encouragement Uh, he talks about the substance, the substance. And you see the substance there in verses 16 and 17, just the two verses before where we started. Would you look there with me? 
after greeting everyone, which is typical in a letter, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's abstract for the rest of the letter, his thesis, so to say, right up front, right up front, is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It, the gospel, it makes known not only the way of salvation or how to be saved, but it also reveals the truth about the one who saves us. It reveals something about God. So one might expect then, if we're going to talk about the righteousness of God, that as Paul continues here in verse 18, where we started, when he begins to speak about the wrath of God, we would expect that he would then use an adversative conjunction. We would think there he would say, but the wrath of God is revealed this way. He doesn't do that. He doesn't draw some line of demarcation between the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. He doesn't put them at odds with one another. Instead, he begins to explain the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel by first explaining the wrath of God. And that's surprising to our modern ears, especially in an era and culture that has largely ignored God's wrath. Somehow the modern, maybe we could say Western church has embraced the lie that if we talk about God's wrath, we somehow diminish, we underestimate his love and his grace and his mercy. But that's not true. That's the farthest thing from the truth. You cannot even begin to wade in the ocean of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy until you first stood on the shore and faced those crashing waves that are coming at you. And that's what Paul's doing in this letter. Right away, you want to know of the gospel? You want to know the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? For the wrath of God is also revealed. Last week, we read how God had created mankind. And how God had placed them in his garden. Remember the first parents, Adam and Eve? What was life like for them? Right? They experienced and excuse me, enjoyed intimate fellowship, personal relationship with God. We can't even imagine that, can we? Before the fall, there they were in the garden, tending to it, working in relationship with God. No separation because of sin. But God had made a covenant with them. The covenant of works, God had made a, a law with them. He told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them, if you do, what will happen? You will surely die. God warns them. He gives them the law. He tells them to keep the law. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. They choose to worship the serpent in a, in a sense. We can say that. And they ate of the fruit of that tree. And what happened? They plunged the world into sin and death. From that point forward, everything changes. The image of God in man is corrupted. It's tainted, you might say, scarred by sin. And so deep is the wound that all those who then proceed from the first parents, Adam and Eve, 
also, that includes you and I, are also born in sin. And God, who is most holy and most righteous, remember he's holy, 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 most holy, most righteous, he cannot tolerate sin. God hates sin. And sin must be punished. So God pours out his wrath against sin. Something we see from Genesis 3 all the way up to the end, the final chapters of Revelation. I want to say now that mercifully God's wrath can be exhausted. Amen. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus went to the cross and exhausted God's wrath against sin for those of us who believe in him. But for those who do not believe, those who do not believe in Jesus, they will continue to suffer under God's wrath and they'll suffer in hell for all eternity. Sin must be punished. It's a happy way to start this morning, huh? But it's the truth. I want you to notice something else here in 118. Something I think is too often overlooked. Paul makes it clear that God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We're like, okay, we know it's right for us to talk about wrath. So we're going to talk about God's wrath as it's just something that happened in the past, right? We think of uh, Noah, the days of Noah. We might talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, We might talk about the plagues against Egypt, We tend to talk about wrath as it was something before. Or maybe we'll say, but it's something future. You know, that time none of us can figure out. We spent, what, a year and a half in Revelation? Did we figure out exactly when Jesus is coming back? No, we didn't. But we know that Jesus is coming back, and we accept what the Word says, that he's going to punish sin and sinners and cast into the lake of fire. We understand that Jesus talked about hell. He talked about the wrath of God. We've come to grips with that, but we're just going to think about it then. Okay, that's later. But the language Paul uses is it's being revealed now. It's revealed now. He wants us to turn our eyes. He wants his readers to turn their eyes to the truth that God's wrath is being revealed also today because God's wrath is central to his being. He can't simply turn it off like a light switch. He can't turn it on and off. So even now, just as in Paul's day, today God's wrath is being revealed as his judgments against sin are poured out on sin and sinners alike. It gets happier, I guess, here. Take note of the words ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that are mentioned there in verse 18. Commentator William Hendrickson, I think he helpfully noted this, and I'll quote him. He said, These two concepts must not be viewed as completely separate entities. Both represent sin, rebellion against God, You see them that way. The first, ungodliness, views sin as a want of reverence for God. Maybe we might put it towards idolatry. The second, unrighteousness, views sin as a want of reverence for God's law. So we might think of that as immorality. So idolatry and immorality. Think about it. Those two concepts feed off of and fuel one another. Idolatry leads to immorality. Immorality leads to more idolatry, which leads to more immorality. And that's what we see, actually, in these verses. 
We must see them. They're not separate causes for God's wrath, but they work together. They're attacks upon the holiness and the majesty of God and who he is. If you glance back through verses 21 through 31, what do you see? You see a flood of ungodliness and unrighteousness that flows through mankind. Idolatry is mentioned right away, the worshiping of images that are mentioned there in 23, all the way through to the awful spiral of immorality that results displayed, and, and he lists many here, unnatural and dishonorable sexual passions, that is homosexuality, he condemns it, as well as other types of egregious sins that are listed here. Did you notice the phrase inventors of evil? It's right there side by side with disobedient to parents. This just continues to go down. This is what we reap. The wages of sin is death. And this is what happens. God's wrath is seen as being revealed against all of this ungodliness and all of this unrighteousness as he, and now I'm quoting the text. Look at verses 24, 26, and 28. It says that God gives them up. God gives mankind up more and more. What does that mean? It means that God doesn't hold us back. He allows mankind to freely choose that which their heart desires. A heart bent towards sin, an unregenerate heart that has not been changed by God, will only continue to pursue sin. It will just continue to go. God holds out the free offer of the gospel. Those whom Christ came to die for will come to him. We preach the gospel in hopes that people will respond. But those whose hearts are not changed will continue in sin. God doesn't violate their will. They continue to do what they want to do. And they spiral down. Man will worship that which he finds most satisfying and most worthy of his praise. He will continue and continue to choose sin. And because God's wrath is revealed against such worship, and it is worship here, such indulgence of sin, those who continue in sin will pay the price for their sin. But there's more. There's actually more to mankind's spiral into sin than this mere free fall into further depths of ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's really hard to read this, isn't it? It's hard to read this. But I want you to notice throughout this encounter here, and we could preach 10 sermons here in this passage, but I want you to notice that mankind is not passive in this process. Mankind is not presented as some victim of a cosmically capricious deity who delights to punish people for some grudge that he holds against Adam and Eve. No, mankind here is presented as more than complicit. And I want us to see that in our second point this morning, the suppression of man. Look at the end of verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul explains in verses 19 through 21 that the church, he confesses, sorry, what the church has confessed for ages is that God has indeed revealed himself in nature. The church has taught this 
from the very beginning. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived from the very creation of the world. In fact, we don't even have to look at the church age. We can go back through all of redemptive history. In Psalm 19.1, what does David proclaim? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see, God has made himself known. He's made himself generally known in and through creation, so much so that Paul says in verse 20 that no one is without excuse. No one is without excuse. This means that there can be no claims of ignorance, no claims of forgetfulness in the courtroom of God's judgment. All who appear there must acknowledge that they knew that there was a God. God has made himself known. If we were to continue into chapter 2, we'll also see that he's made himself known through conviction of conscience. The fact that we know the difference between right and wrong. It's also there. God has made himself known. But in their sin, mankind suppresses the truth about God. This is active language here. They suppress the truth about God. Notice that mankind is not blinded to the truth of God. Mankind is not just apathetic to the truth of God. No, mankind is said to actively suppress the truth about God. So I'm going to do what I very rarely do. I'm going to try to illustrate this for you. Okay, so I have a 12-ounce glass. I think it's 12 ounces. And I'm going to make a giant mess. Megan filled this up for me. There's probably 17 ounces of water in this. And if I told you, I want you to get that 17 ounces of water in that glass. Okay. Start to fill the glass up. It's really bad for people listening later. Chemists in here are like, look at the meniscus. Okay. It's probably a little bit more than 12 but I still haven't put all this in here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to hold the water in. I'm going to try to push it down. There's got, it's foolishness, right? It's utter foolishness. That's what that word picture is for you. When we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness, our sin takes the truth of God and just presses it down more and more and more, tries to blind us to it, tries to, to get us so excited about everything else that we don't think about the reality of sin. But the problem is that it just continues to pour out. God continues to make himself known. We cannot say there is no God. You cannot suppress enough. But that's what mankind is doing. They are actively suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We try to press down the truth about God, both who he is and our accountability to him. But because mankind is made by God and for God, mankind is created to worship him in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. They foolishly, look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then here it is. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When you see this, I want you to have that picture in your head. Mankind is actively suppressing the truth of God. So much so that they end up worshiping anything other than God who made them. 
anything. Active suppression of the truth. As you go through this passage, it leads to an active exchange of that truth for a lie that ultimately leads to an active worship of something other than God. And then look at verse 32. Even more, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that is, they deserve God's wrath, not only do they know this, Not only do they continue to actively suppress truth and worship something other than God, look what they do. They give approval to those who do the same thing. Quite literally, they cheer each other on. Worship leads to worship, which leads to more and more and more worship. If you don't see that in our world today, open your eyes. Celebrating, celebrating, celebrating sin. Mankind was made to worship. And here's the point. Mankind will indeed worship. Every single one of us worships. And that leads us back to where we began. The question is not whether we worship, but rather whom we worship. That brings us to this third, and we'll call it our concluding point this morning. The heart of worship. As image bearers of God, we've already established we're made to worship him. But because of sin, our hearts are relentlessly evil, our spirits are corrupt, and apart from God's saving grace, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We're completely unable to worship God as we ought. We are unable. So what does it take? It takes that of which we've sang already this morning. The radical an amazing grace of God who changes our hearts and sets us free to worship him. And he's done that. He's done that. He's revealed himself to us in the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world as the very image of God himself. He came to satisfy God's wrath against our sin and give us his righteousness So listen, only that great exchange, that great exchange I speak of is his sin, right? Sorry, our sin for his righteousness. Austin dubbed that out later. (laughs) Our sin for his righteousness can enable us to truly worship God. To truly worship God, we must have a righteousness that is not our own. To see God as not only worthy of our praise, but worthy of our entire devotion takes a radical life-changing event. So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been saved by grace through faith, and you already know that, you know that you are now free, free to worship God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you know that you can only do it through the atoning blood of Jesus and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. You are actually free. You are free to glorify God by reflecting his glory, to be a living picture of his grace, to be a living picture of his love and of his mercy and his forgiveness and of all that he's for you in Jesus Christ. You're indeed a worshiper. Yet in some measure, and we're faced with this every day, we're also like those who worship someone or something other than God. Because though we have Christ's righteousness, we still continue to live in this world, don't we? Is there anyone here who does not battle sin and flesh and the devil? Does anyone here not struggle with temptation and failure? 
So what do we do in those moments? Do we freely confess and repent? Or do we find ourselves suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing? I know I do. Rather than doing what I can to reflect his glory and his grace, I end up just contrasting it. We join the throngs of worshipers, but instead of directing our our minds and our lives and others to him, we seek meaning and we seek relevance, we seek satisfaction, we seek to root our identity in someone or something other than him. Yeah, I can be a Christian over here, but I'm going to do my thing over here. You're free to worship. If you're in Christ, you are free to worship. But remember, you're also free to pursue ungodliness and unrighteousness as well. We will indeed worship. So the question's for every single human being while they have breath in their lungs. Whom will we worship? Anthony, is it Augustine or Augustine? The classics major here, but uh, Augustine of Hippo, he said it well when he wrote in his confessions, many of you may know this quote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds this rest in you. You familiar with that quote? I'll say it again. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. So I'm going to ask you a simple question. Have you found your rest in God? through Jesus Christ. If not, good news. It's not too late. It's never too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you can still be saved from God's wrath. God can and God will change your heart. He'll transform it so that you will be able and willing to worship him. Simple. Turn to Jesus Christ today. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. I pray that today would be a day of salvation for you. I want you and your heart to find rest in Jesus today. But what about the rest of us? What about those of us who say, I know my identity is in Christ. For those who know that you've been set free to worship God in spirit and in truth How can I find rest in Jesus? How can my heart find rest? Well, are you truly satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ Jesus? Is Jesus truly enough for you? Then why would you worship anything else? Because we do. So if you're putting your hope in yourself, if you're putting your hope in a five-step plan that maybe the pastor will give one of these days to help you overcome all this, you're looking in the wrong place. Turn your hearts to heaven. Confess your sin, repent, ask God to help you. He will. He will surely do it. He will lead you. He will help you. You will not overcome by any strength of your own. You will not overcome by any program that you might enroll yourself in. You will overcome because God, period. He who began a good work in you will most certainly bring it to completion. The good news is that even though you sin, God continues to open you with welcome arms. 
And he delights in you. And he delights in your worship. So worship him. Worship him. Turn from worthless idols. Turn from rooting your identity in anything but him. And live for him. Amen and amen.